Let's take our Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, Christmas is not yet over. I have these sermons ready, so you're going to hear them, all right? This can be either lingering of 2017, it could be a foreshadowing 2018, or you may not care one way or the other. Nonetheless, we are going to continue, and uh, just to give you a bit of a heads up then, so in two weeks, not the next two weeks we're going to talk about the particular character we're looking at this morning, uh, the story of Anna and her role as a witness, uh, and then, uh, so this morning and next week, uh, but then two weeks from today, we'll turn our attention again to the book of Romans. I uh, would encourage you in the meantime to begin reading, if you've not yet, uh, read again Romans 7, especially beginning in verse 13, going through the end of that chapter. Uh, I think you will find Paul's testimony there to ring with, uh, with some truth in your own heart. Uh, in fact, it may sound, uh, maybe a, it may hit a little too close to home. And so we'll have an opportunity to reflect on what, what are the challenges of Christian living. How do I live the Christian life in, light, in, in, in spite of the fact I still struggle with the flesh? Why is it I do those things that I hate and don't do those things I love? This is Paul's lament in chapter 7. And uh, so may, maybe read ahead as we consider that story uh, in a couple of weeks. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 36. Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. This woman was a widow of about 84 years, who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of Him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. I have to make a disclaimer here. Though I have often used the imagery of the courtroom, of a, of a legal setting, as an illustration for a variety of preaching points, my knowledge of the courtroom is largely relegated to TV, movies, and John Grisham novels. Alright? Okay? Now, those of you out there who are looking at me like you've never read a John Grisham novel, alright, you can drop the pious act, okay? You understand what I mean. We have this knowledge of how these things work. And so, what I'm about to say is perhaps based on that, though nonetheless... I do have some experience in a courtroom. No, it's not with my bad driving record, alright? You know, as a pastor, one of the things you are often asked to do is to be a character witness. Now, I've done that for a number of you in a non-legal setting. I've been a reference for you. Perhaps for a job, the Gideons, uh, school-related matters, uh, other kinds of activities in which you needed either a character reference or specifically you needed a pastor to give his nod of approval for you. Perhaps you had no choice but to call on me and you were just hoping I would be a valid one. All right, I don't know. But I think for the most part I served as a credible witness. But there was one instance 
will not give you all the details, but it was a family situation. It was a custody situation with the child. And I was called on to serve as a character witness for an individual who was wanting to get custody of the child. Now, ideally, here is what that they were assuming. The, the, the lawyer and uh, their team, they were assuming that as a pastor and someone who knew the individual in the case could serve as a valid, helpful witness. Now, what's behind that, though? What would have made me a valid, reputable witness? There is an assumption, an assumption, that I have good character, right? Some of you know me, do not say a word. I can see it. I can see you're hurting. Your lips are bleeding from biting it. All right, I can see it. Nonetheless, this is what this one family needed me to do. Now, what would happen, though, if somebody in that instance gets up on the stand and his or her primary purpose is to offer a testimony, a witness uh, on behalf of the individual uh, under consideration, what would happen if in the midst of this, in the midst of maybe questioning or maybe something on the other side, maybe they came up with some kind of dirt and, and it come to find out you are a dirty, rotten, no good reprobate. You're a known liar, thief. You're, you're duplicitous and deceitful. At that point, how good was that decision to call you as a witness? It's not very good, right? In fact, not only will you not be a good witness, you'll now hurt the case of the individual that you were to testify on behalf of, right? The assumption will be you are like the company you keep. It's important have a good witness. I think as we look at the Christmas story, and I know it sounds odd, second Sunday in January, 2018, Christmas story, nonetheless, this is where we are. If you look at especially how Luke, the one who tells the story with the most detail, the one who gives us the most information, he set out to do it this way, it's striking that when you read through these two chapters, All of the people called upon to testify to Christ, and in particular His birth, are people of the highest reputation. I mean, think think about all the stories that you know. Even even jumping over into Matthew, we know Joseph to be a man of integrity, right? A man of righteousness, a faithful and obedient man. We know Mary to be a humble, loving man. Servant of the Lord. We know Elizabeth and Zechariah are, are, are both a, a husband and wife of, of deep faith and obedience to the Lord. And then on Christmas Eve, we looked at Simeon. Though Simeon is another underappreciated character of the Christmas story, his testimony is important here. He serves as another example of a man of, uh, of faith and obedience. He's described as in these terms. And, He's described as, as, as coming constantly to the temple and a man who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. In fact, we looked at, at that story and, and, and noted that, that for Simeon, uh, his testimony is important not only because he was a man of character, but he's outside of the family. So the other characters are a part of the family. Simeon 
It's an outside observer who by the Holy Spirit testifies that this is the one, the child, Jesus, is the one that Israel has been waiting for. But there's a problem with some of these witnesses. I, I say a problem. Again, these are men and women of faith. They're fine, reputable, good folk. We call them salt of the earth, right? But they're nobodies. We shouldn't take that the wrong way. That's not intended to be offensive. All of us are. They're not writing books about us, all right? In other words, this is kind of, unless you just happen to be one of the few people who do something really historic and, and, and you get written about. Otherwise, I mean, this is who we are. So most of the witnesses to this child, though valid, credible witnesses, are not very well known. Till this morning. Now, I know we may not immediately think this, because when we think of Anna, we think of her testimony, she's only given three verses in the book of Luke. We've never heard of her before this. We will not not hear from her again after this. If If I were to ask you who are the most famous characters in the Bible, I doubt Anna makes a top 100. And yet in her day, and I'll flesh this out as we go through her story, in her day, Anna would have been a big deal. You notice even what we just read there. She's identified as a prophetess. We know her lineage. We know her tribe. We know her father. She's also described as being there in the temple night and day. Best research indicates she probably lived in a set of housing otherwise reserved for priests. Anna was a big deal. And so Luke saves his last witness. The last witness he calls to the stand, so to speak. The final voice, though she will not actually be given words in the text, the final voice that gives testimony to Christ is perhaps the best witness yet. Keep in mind that the wise men haven't shown up on the scene yet, all right? Shepherds aren't very notable. Angels would be great great witnesses, but they've only shown up to the shepherds, Mary, Joseph, Elizabeth, Zechariah. Alright, these are the only folks who've seen the angels. So Anna serves an important function in Luke's Gospel. She serves as one final witness that everything that has been said about Jesus, about the uniqueness of this birth, about the significance of this child, this is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, this is the Messiah... Anna serves as a final witness to that. So here's what we're going to do with her story. I've got to tell you, I've never really preached much on Anna. Probably most of us have not done much study on Anna. So we're going to give the girl two weeks, alright? In fact, if you don't mind me saying it, we're going to give the old girl two weeks, alright? And we'll see just how old the girl is. She could be really old. Because I think Anna, Anna serves us in two ways. I mean, fundamentally, what is, what is her role? What is this story's role in Luke's Gospel? Again, he concludes these birth accounts by giving us one more witness to the most profound moment in human history. And so, Anna confirms for us everything that has been set up to this point. Like the final exclamation point. The final stamp of approval on who Jesus is. And we're going to look at two ramifications of this. We'll look at one this morning, and we'll look at another one next week. 
Because here's what we're going to do with Anna. We're going to see how her story, again, tells us about the gospel and, and what that means for us. In many ways, Anna is a great person to consider in the new year. Because she's going to ground us once again in the hope and truth of the gospel. And Anna's going to serve as an example for us of what I think is a desperate need in the life of this church. I don't mean the church. Well, it is in the church too. But I mean in our church. In fact, I think Anna will serve as an example for us of what I hope and pray will become a major move, emphasis, development, dare I even use the bad word, change. All right? In 2018. That is, as Tabernacle Baptist Church, we would reassert, recommit ourselves to sharing the gospel with the lost so that we might make disciples of Jesus Christ. Because if we're not doing that, then nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Anna is going to give us a great look at what this might mean for us, but that'll be next week. So this morning, let's first look at the first way in which Anna's story has an impact on us you want to fill in a blank, you only get to fill in one, though there'll be a little bit more up there on the screen in just a minute, but you only get to fill in one blank, all right? So we're, we're going to ease you into the new year, one blank to fill in, number one. The first truth that I think Anna affirms for us, her testimony affirms our understanding of the gospel. And let me go ahead and preface this. I know you hear stuff like this and you think, oh man, here we go again, the whole gospel thing. If at any point in your walk with Christ you think you've gone so far that you've gotten over the gospel, you've missed the point. I never get beyond my need for the gospel. I never get beyond my need for Christ crucified and resurrected. That doesn't mean I need to get saved over and over again, but I think one of the realities that should really just settle in our hearts, and I think this is a This is genuinely the the motivation for more effective evangelism and disciple-making is that we, we again, come to grips with what is the profound hope and truth of the Gospel in our own lives. I wonder if maybe sometimes we're not as effective in sharing the Gospel because we've gotten so comfortable with it in us. We've no longer... We no longer sit in what is the, just the profound darkness of lostness. And so the gospel itself can perhaps lose its vitality. So, we come along and we see Anna, we see her story. She once again affirms uh, all that is true about the gospel, though her testimony is not a formal declaration of Christ crucified, resurrected. Still, what's going on here is an affirmation that Jesus is the one. Fully God, fully man, fully uh, legal in his ability uh, to be our Savior. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to just kind of follow through the text, looking at the details, making some points uh, of connection along the way. And then, then next week, uh, we'll turn to our second principle. So, beginning there in verse 36. Now, there was one, Anna. Stop there for just a second. The name Anna, that is merely a Greek way of saying Hannah. It's the exact same name. And does anybody recognize that name? 
not from members of our church. All right, does anybody recognize that beyond that? Okay. Yeah, there's a pretty famous Hannah in the Old Testament. In fact, there's only one. Isn't that fascinating? It is the exact same name, and we know Hannah. We know her to be the, the mother who was going to be, you know, at first unable to bear a child. Uh, the mother of Samuel. And the name Hannah and the name Anna means grace. Grace. Now, I already find this significant that the next time we see the name Hannah shows up with the birth of Christ, another miraculous birth, right? And who was Hannah but the mother of Samuel? Samuel serves as an Old Testament foreshadowing of Christ because Samuel functioned as prophet, priest, and king in Israel. He was the transition from the judges to Saul. So so Samuel serves as an important image in the Old Testament of who the Messiah would be. So it's interesting, we have kind of this textual connection. Though Anna is not a mother, uh, we don't have any evidence that she is. We're told she was married for seven years, uh, but we don't have any evidence she was a mother. Nonetheless, I think it is significant. The next time the name shows up, the name Grace shows up, is in regard to the birth of Christ. So there was one, Anna. Notice the next phrase that describes her. A prophetess. A prophetess. Another little tidbit about Anna. Here's why I think she's so significant. One, by the time Luke writes his gospel, what's happened to Anna? Guarantee you she's dead. I guarantee it. By the time you get to Luke writing the gospel, somewhere in the 50s, Anna is long in the grave. So where's Luke getting this information? She's known by her reputation. She's left behind. And what's she known as? She's known as a prophetess. Did you know that Anna is the only woman in the New Testament named as a prophetess? There are a couple of other references to prophetesses, but none of them are named by name. Only Anna is given this name. And I find this significant. If you remember, it's been 400 years since a prophet spoke in Israel. It's been a time of darkness. There's been no word from the Lord. In fact, that's part of the purpose of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is now going to prepare the way of the Lord. He's going to be the last of the Old Testament prophets. But it's interesting, you have this woman who is living in the temple area, so to speak, who is known as a prophetess. This is her title. Now, what does this mean? Well, we shouldn't be confused by the term. You know, we hear the word prophet, and what do we think of? Somebody who tells the future, right? Interesting little study for you, though it would take you a very long time to do it. Read throughout the Old Testament and find out how many times the prophets actually foretold the future. It's really quite rare. They rarely foretell the future. More often than not, here's what prophets are intended to do. To speak to the people on God's behalf. These are people who speak the word of the Lord. It's more than just foretelling, as has often been said, it is forthtelling. In other words, they declare the truth, and very often associated with that are two responses. One, either you listen to the truth and enjoy God's forgiveness and favor again, or you ignore the truth and He's going to smoke you. All right? They don't literally say that, but sometimes that is literally what happens. Okay? So in other words, you listen, obey, good, listen, disobey, bad. That's what prophets do. They, they, were, they were sirens, warning of impending doom. 
Not like in Hawaii, all right? In other words, this was literal, all right? This could have literally happened, and it did literally happen when they did not obey. So when we talk about Anna being a prophetess, she's not foretelling the future. She's also not a formal Old Testament prophet in that sense. However, here's what this does mean. Luke is identifying her as a faithful teacher of God's Word. That's profound. This is a woman in the temple area who's coming there night and day, and she's described as a prophetess. This means she is faithful to understand and to declare the Word of God. In what context is she doing this? We have no idea. Most that I've read suggest she's probably teaching formally women in the court of women. Because that's, that's what probably the extent to which she would have been allowed to do so. However, her presence and reputation probably afforded to her great significance. And isn't it interesting? Who does Luke never call on? That may not be the right way to say that. Who does Luke never call on as a witness to Christ? Pharisees? Teachers of the law? We do have a priest, but we only have one, and he just happens to be the father of John the Baptist. In fact, you'll notice of all the people in the court, of all the people in the temple area, of all who are there, he calls on an old man that nobody knows, and he calls on a woman. It's not the last time Luke's going to tell us about a woman who is willing to testify to the Lord, right? Women occupy a major feature of Luke's gospel. So here she is, a woman whose name means grace, identified as a prophetess. Then notice these next two. The daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Say, what's the big deal there? First of all, notice she is identified by her genealogy. Do you know who else is identified by their genealogy? Jesus, Mary, Joseph, Paul, Anna. Wow. (laughs) That's pretty good, right? In other words, if you're going to be kept in some kind of company, uh, that's not bad. We, We know her genealogy. Now for us... Perhaps that's not as big of a thing culturally as it was then, but this this does a couple of things. One, it identifies her as a real historical person. This is not metaphor. This is not some kind of myth created by the church to talk about Jesus. This is a real gal. All right, she lived. She's got a dad. She's got a tribe she's a part of. So to identify her lineage, who else is described in regard to their lineage? Kings and prophets. Is that not fascinating that here we have this woman identified this way? She clearly, and this is why I say, of all of the characters, she's a somebody. We don't really know her, but in her day, they did. Because they know this stuff about her. Again, she's dead by the time Luke writes his gospel. So this is known about her character. This is known about her genealogy. She is, she's unofficially official in the court. She is a profound witness, perhaps the most human profound witness to all of this, at least in terms of her standing with the culture. The reference, by the way, to the tribe of Asher is interesting because the other, the other thing you find in the New Testament, you find the tribe of Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. Now, Levites, these were the priestly class. Judah and Benjamin were a part of the southern kingdom. It is suggested that the other ten tribes were lost to history. And yet, what do we have here in the first century? 
We have clear identification. This woman is of the tribe of Asher. Because it was not uncommon in that day to assume that the promises of God were only going to come to Judah because the southern part of Israel was the one that remained the most faithful. Which really you should put in air quotes, all right? Because none of them were ever faithful. But they're thinking, yes, they're the cream of the crop. All right? they, they still have Jerusalem. They still have the temple. These are the best of the best. And yet, who comes to testify to the redemption that's going to come in Christ? A woman of the tribe of Asher. So, here, here is another bit of biographical information that shows she's something significant. Because not only is she a prophetess, but she also comes from one of the other tribes. Keep in mind, one of Luke's main priorities is to show that the gospel is going to be the gospel for all nations. It's not just for Judah, it's for all of Israel. It's not just for Israel, it's for Jews and Gentiles. And it's not just for men, it's for men and women. It's for slave and for free. This is going to be a feature throughout Luke's gospel. So a testimony given to this Savior is a woman identified as a prophetess in the tribe of Asher. Then look at the next bit of information. This is the part that may be, uh, I don't know about most interesting, but kind of gives us a, a, a big insight into who this woman was. She was of a great age. So, those of you who are old, just say, yeah, I'm a great age. All right, I've got a great age. That's what you say. Say it's in the Bible and quote it and say, yeah, I am of a great age. Of course, we know what, she, what this really means, Right? She's got more years behind her than in front of her. All right? And it goes on to describe this. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. It's an odd way to describe somebody, right? My guess is you've never described a friend that way. All right, nonetheless, what is this saying? Well, this means that from the age at which they got married, 14, 15, 16. I know that sounds odd, right? It kind of blows your mind, especially if you're in here and you're right around that age, all right? Nonetheless, this is what they did. So this means by the time she is 21, 22, 23, she's a widow. Seven years. The other thing this does is it, it we may not read it this way immediately, but in the context and culture, this means that was the only time she was married. She never got remarried. She could have, but after seven years... Her husband dies. Then notice this next phrase. And this was a woman, and this woman was a widow of about 84 years. Now here's where the discrepancy comes in. The way the New King James reads, when I read that, it makes it sound like she was 84 years old. That probably is most likely. 84 still would have been pretty old, all right? Uh, in the first century. Some of you may think 84 is pretty old today. All right, anyway, so 84 was pretty old then. However, it is possible that what this means is it, she has been a widow for 84 years. Do the math. I know I, I, know I hit my head on the ice uh, earlier this week, but I think that makes her about 105 possibly, right? I mean, I think I got that right. Over 100 years old. She possibly could be over 100 years old. Now stop there for just a second. Actually, don't. We'll, we'll stop here. Just look at this next part. Who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. Wow. 
this is really a significant part of Luke. Have you noticed how often in these stories, Luke used old people? Zechariah and Elizabeth were old. It said they were old. In fact, that's one of the reasons why Zechariah didn't think he was going to have a kid. Simeon, he was described as an old man. Anna, he's described as old. What's Luke doing here? I think he's doing a couple of things. One, he's making it clear that in spite of the fact that the rest of the Gospel of Luke is going to show the religious leaders of Jesus' day did not understand the Old Testament, they did not understand God's Word, they did not understand the promises about the Messiah, they were missing it all, they were missing it all in Jesus, Luke is going to ground his story in the Gospel by reminding us God still had His remnant. God had those who were faithful. God had those who understood It's fascinating that Luke is so clear to show that in spite of the fact Israel had a lot of learned men, they didn't have the theology of a 16-year-old like Mary. They didn't have the theology of a 100-year-old like Anna. They didn't have the theology of a priest like Zechariah, a nobody, no-nothing priest from a no-nothing town. In other words, Luke goes out of his way to show that these testimonies to Jesus Christ are from people who were faithful to the Old Testament, understand the, understood the Word, and committed to God. Did you notice where Anna finds herself every day? Serving in the temple. How often is she doing this? Day and night. What is she doing while she's there? Fasting and praying. Now this doesn't mean that she never ate, alright? That would be something. It just means this was a regular part of her discipline. She fasted regularly. She prayed. This undoubtedly would have been every day. This was a woman of deep and profound devotion to the Lord. So I'm going to make a couple of comments here. You'll know I love you, right? Uh Uh-oh. All right? It is entirely possible, if not probable, That we will retire from our vocation in some way. But you never retire from the gospel. You never retire from fastings and prayers. You never retire from daily coming into the temple. I don't mean daily coming into the church. I mean you never retire from devotion to the Lord. You you never retire from God's job description from you. Actually, I take that back. You do retire from it one day, and it's pretty obvious when that happens. You'll know, by the way. You'll know. If you're wondering, when is God going to have me retire from all this? Don't worry. It'll be obvious, All right. It'll be obvious the next day. When you wake up in somewhere that doesn't look like this. Okay? In other words, so that, that, that'll be your sign. God will absolutely tell you when your day is over. And you'll wake up in glory. So that's the good news. But there's more good news. Until that time, you know what that means? That means we... This is going to sound odd. I know, guys. This is going to sound odd. Nonetheless, she serves as a really convicting image. We should all be like Anna. Anna. Whatever you want to say. That sounds too much like Frozen. But anyway, so we should all be like, okay? We should all be like uh, this woman who... who gives her life for the sake of God and His Word and devotion to Him. And what is she doing? She's spending all day waiting on the redemption promised in the Old Testament. 
What is our excuse? She's waiting on the coming of Christ. We've had the coming of Christ. She's waiting on the redemption to come. We already know the Redeemer. She's waiting on the One who would fulfill the promises of the Old Testament. We already have a meaningful, personal relationship with, the, with Him. What is our excuse? What is it that we put in front of the Lord and say, this is more important than your Gospel? What of our own wants and desires do we set in front of the King of the universe and use as a valid excuse to say, I'm not going to share your Gospel. I'm not going to love your people. I'm not going to study your Word. I'm not going to be obedient to your truth. What excuse do we have standing before that God and that great Savior when we've got a woman who gave everything to something that had not come and yet we possess something that is fuller and more real than she could have ever known and how often do we as the church just keep it to ourselves? God forgive us. God forgive us. And if at some point you read Anna's story and you're not convicted, then you better pray that the Spirit would pierce your heart because she should convict every last one of us. This is a profound testimony of one who gave her life for this. Would it not be great then to give our lives for the sake of the Gospel? So to those of you who find yourself of a great age, can I make a plea? Don't give up on us. I know you feel like this culture marginalizes you. And you feel that way? Because they do. Because they do. But understand, in God's story, He's always had His faithful remnant. He's always had those of a great age that were used of Him to speak the truth of the Lord to the culture in which they were placed. We need your testimony. We need your wisdom. To those of us who, well, I'd say are not of a great age, I guess it depends on what age you're at, whether or not you think the person above you is of a great age. Some of you in here probably think I'm of a great age. Some of you remind me by saying, well, pastor, you know you're at that age. All right, anyway, nonetheless, it's not very helpful, but you say it, all right? Of course, I say unhelpful things to you probably. So that's how this relationship works, I guess, sometimes, isn't it? Understand, I know this is going to sound like a cliche. It's going to sound like a bit of a Dr. Phil moment, all right? The reputation you will have for yourself when you are a great age is being built right now. And let me warn you with this. It's a lot easier to ruin it than to build it. Just ask Harvey Weinstein. Right? It's a lot easier to ruin your good name than it is for 84 years to build a reputation that's known after you die. Again, Luke is writing this after Anna has died. Her reputation has gone on after her. What a story. So here she is, day and night, serving God, fasting and prayers. And then verse 38, And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of Him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. As Simeon is there giving his blessing over this child, as Simeon is there speaking of now the consolation of Israel has come, as Simeon is there saying, now I can die in peace because God's kept His promise to me, as Simeon is, is in essence laying the blessing on Mary and Joseph, something, I would argue, is the Holy Spirit, prompts Anna. Anna finds herself in the temple as she does day and night. And then something identifies this family. This young couple with this 40-day-old child and this old man standing there holding this baby. And Anna comes alongside and testifies to this, giving thanks to the Lord. Yes, this is the child. And then what does she do after that? And spoke of Him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. 
She was a prophetess before this. She was a prophetess teaching the word of the Lord. She was a prophetess teaching the Messiah is coming. After this moment, now what is she? She's a prophetess to say, the Lord has come. Redemption is upon us. She is a faithful witness for the sake of the gospel. She's a profound witness for us. She does. And and, and what she does here, this, this then affirms the truth of the gospel. Two ideas. It affirms, and this is the, the next slide, it affirms that Jesus is legal, all right? He's the legal redeemer. The law said there had to be at least two or more witnesses about the, to verify the truth of something. Simeon and Anna. So she shows that he is legal. By the way, another little interesting aside here. Have you noticed how often Luke uses men and women together? Elizabeth, Zechariah, Mary, Joseph, Simeon, and Anna. And let me give you one other interesting connection. Luke 24, the infamous story where Jesus meets two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Do you know there's a lot of scholars who think they were husband and wife? I kind of like that idea myself. They don't have any way of really knowing that for sure. But so what's he doing here? I mean, in, in Anna's testimony, we have final confirmation. He is a Savior available to the world, available to the nations, to Judah, to Benjamin, to Asher, to men and to women, to slaves and to free, uh, to Jews and to Greeks. This is, the, this is the Savior. And so this is then an affirmation of his redemption. Anna also testifies to something critically important here. She testifies to the fact that Israel is indeed enslaved and they need a redeemer. This, by the way, is going to be the essence of our gospel proclamation. The essence that we'll talk about next week as we think more about what it means then to follow Anna's example to be a more faithful witness for the sake of the gospel. But understand, her message is our message. The lost world is enslaved and we have the only Savior who can free them. This is what Anna's doing. Declaring the redemption that is available in Christ and Christ alone. Keep Anna in your mind, all right? Because we'll jump back into this story next week. We'll look back through it again with a little bit different of a lens because I think Anna's going to give us then more information on what it means. How, how can we begin a new year thinking more carefully about what it looks like to be an evangelistic disciple-making church? Anna gives us a great way to jumpstart that effort. I'll also let you know there's going to be more official work in this. So we're, we're calling together uh, a team. There's going to be a meeting at the end of this month uh, of those who will then be involved in helping us move forward into what it looks like to really be an evangelistic church. It's not to say that you know God is then required to save a lot of people. There's a lot of lost people in New Bern, in Craven County. Have you noticed that? You should, all right? Because there are, there are a lot. In fact, I think there's more than you think. We'll talk about that next week. But this will be a great jumping off point for us to think, what is the nature of our witness? What is the nature of our witness as a church and then my witness as an individual believer? So, you know, so as we come to a time of invitation, as we think about how we're going to respond to His Word, as we're going to sing, I will... S- We'll sing of my Redeemer. We're going to sing as Anna would have sung. We're going to sing of our Redeemer. My first plea would be to anybody here who does not know this Redeemer. You see, the truth is, the prophetess would speak to you and say, if you don't confess your sin and submit to Christ crucified and resurrected, then you will face God's judgment for eternity. 
That is the warning of God's word. I would implore you, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, that you do that. This, the, the Christmas story does affirm for us this truth. Jesus is the Savior. And it affirms for us He is the one and only Savior. If you've not placed all your faith in Him, you can do so. Confessing your sin, believing Jesus died for you and rose again, asking God to forgive you based on what Christ has done. If you'd like to know more about that, I'll be down front. would love an opportunity to pray with you, if you'd like for me to pray with you. Know that coming an aisle is not a magical moment that saves. But if you feel like you need to kind of place a, a marker, a stamp that says, yes, yes, I, I, I am trusting Christ with my life. Maybe though you'd say, yeah, I'm a believer. I trusted Christ as my Savior. I don't know if I'd have the reputation Anna has. I don't know if I'm a serving in the courts day and night kind of person. What a great time of year. I know it's not the first. I know it's not even the first Sunday of the year. It's the first Sunday we've gathered. And the last time I checked, God's desire to see you in greater fellowship with Him is not bound to a day on the calendar. If you're here today and you would say, you know what, my Christian walk has been something less than this. The good news is the gospel is all that you need in order to live. Will you find yourself living in submission to it? Maybe you'd like to come and just... Dedicate the year to Him. Dedicate your life to living in in renewal and faithfulness and obedience. I'd invite you to do that. Maybe you'd like me to pray with you. I'll pray with you. Maybe you want to pray where you are. God can hear your prayers wherever you are in the building. All right. Make this an opportunity to say yes. Yes, we will begin now building a reputation of the gospel in our lives so that we might be effective in sharing it with the lost world. Let's stand together and I'll pray. After I pray, then this time will be open to you. Father God, we thank You for gathering us. Thank You for this Word. And God, we do submit ourselves to it. We pray that you, by your Spirit, would bring it to bear on our lives and that that you would do in us what needs to be done as a result of of your Word uh, piercing into our hearts and our souls that we might be faithful to you. We simply want to be effective servants, tools in your hands and means to your end. So God, we pray whatever decision is made here is glorified. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.